1: What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to
0: Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we recently finished the
1: West Coast leg of our tour— The Hat had a different show than the East Coast dates, which has already aired, which was about Anne Royal. Uh, And since we were traveling to Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles and San Francisco in October, my favorite month, we decided to make it a creepy episode. And that is actually how we're closing out our Halloween programming for the year. Sort of. <laughs> uh, we recorded one about a classic horror actor, which has become our tradition. That's going to come out in November for logistical calendar reasons, and
2: also because it turned out it was not really that Halloween-y. Yeah, when we when we had our unexpected switcheroo in the calendar, I, we went through it, and I said, okay, of, of these Halloween episodes already recorded, this is the one that's not tied to a specific date and is slightly less Halloween-y. So you can look forward to that in November. And without further ado... Here is one of the shows we recorded during this tour. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
1: And you guys wow. already win the
2: prize for best tour audience so far. I that was like, I don't know if anybody listens to Sawbones, that was a Sydney McElroy level of cheering. <laughs>
1: You're so good. So, the idea of premature burial and our collective fear of it has, of course, been written about for centuries. And the fear of being buried alive is called taffophobia, in case you did not know, uh, which for some reason makes me think about the Bob's Burgers episode where um, Louise makes a friend out of a man made of taffy. I don't, it's a whole different thing. But, taffophobia is alive and well today. (laughs) But there was a period from the 18th and into the 20th century where it reached this fever pitch in Europe and the United States. So we're going to break down today a little bit where that phobia really came from, at least in terms of of that period of time, and how people tried to deal with it. Uh, And really just how real a possibility of a live burial actually was or was not.
2: There's a lot of emphasis on the was not part, just as a spoiler. Uh, Theologian John Duns Scotus, the first of many delightful names we have in this episode, was said to have been buried alive in 1308. So according to a pretty widely accepted story, he had experienced some kind of an attack that left him completely unresponsive. He was buried in Cologne, and then when his servant, who had been away when this all happened, came back, he insisted that the body be exhumed. And so when the tomb opened,
1: Scotus's hands were bloodied and worn down, indicating that he had been trying to fight his way out of the tomb, which is horrifying. However, uh, that account did not actually show up until Francis Bacon wrote about it in Historia Vitae et Mortis, and that's the history of life and death. And he wrote that in the early 17th century, so 300 years after Dun Scotus died. And it is completely unclear. We have no idea where he got this information because it didn't seem to exist before then. I have an idea. <laughs> he made it up. His
2: fevered imagination. <laughs> uh, when he first put out the story, though, it didn't really cause any kind of a panic. But by the late 18th century, leading right through the Victorian era, Europe and the United States in particular were just fascinated with and terrified of the thought of live burial. And there were a lot of factors that contributed to this huge cultural anxiety.
1: So, for one thing, there was this thesis that was written in 1740 by um, a Danish-born anatomist whose name was uh, Jakob Benin Winslow, and it was titled Morte in Certe Signa" or Death Uncertainty Standards. So, it really sounds like a page-turner. Um, and in it, he wrote about the pitfalls of how the medical community was applying its methodology to determine that someone was or was not, in fact, dead. Uh, And he referenced, as an example, this John Donne Scottish story as though it were a verified fact.
2: I like how I pronounced his name totally different for me.
1: (laughs) I don't, I don't, I never found a a consistent pronunciation. So if we have
2: horrified anyone... Sorry, uh, just, that's just a bonus. So uh, Winslow's ideas were pretty sound, though. He thought that a lack of a pulse and the appearance that respiration had ceased, he thought that was probably not enough to conclusively and confidently declare someone to be dead, which, I mean, that's a pretty reasonable conclusion. But for him, the only way he thought to be sure was to wait and see if the body started decomposing, which, like, that's an abundance of caution. Yes. I feel like if Winslow
1: were watching modern TV and film, he would be that guy in the audience going, that's not how you're doing it at all, because all they do is look at him for like a second, do the eye close, and they're out of there. Um, And that would not be nearly enough for him. But then, another physician, Jean-Jacques Brouillet d'Ablancourt, he was French, y'all. He took Winslow's writing, and he kind of ran with it because Winslow's thesis had been written in Latin. And so Bruyere translated it into French, and to kind of illustrate the points that were being made, he added in anecdotes of people who had been buried alive as a sort of commentary. And he published this as a two-volume work, and the first volume was published in 1742. It was titled Dissertation sur l'incertitude des signes de la mort, or The Uncertainty of Signs of
2: Death. So I said it badly. His translation didn't rely on any kind of verified information when it came to adding in these anecdotes. He relied on folklore and rumor and legend to fill out this whole version of his book, and that really sensationalized adaptation of Winslow's earlier work became incredibly successful. It was translated and republished in Europe and in the United States, and then some of these translations then added their own flourish with all kinds of other stories, uh, that uh, beyond what had been supplied. So to lay people, this came off as incredibly credible. It was written by a doctor, two doctors, depending on the attribution and the translation. I'm not going to name any names. I feel like there's still a doctor out there <laughs> who's saying stuff and people are believing it because he's a doctor. Um, but of course, if doctors said that premature burial was a real and common danger, that must be true. So he made a lot of money off of this work. Yeah, they all wanted to be ready
1: and understand this whole situation. And even though other medical professionals eventually wrote their own critiques of Brouillet's work, uh, pointing out how much of it was really speculative and, in fact, quite fanciful, the damage was already done in so many ways. People had already latched onto it. And so many people had grown terrified that they were going to be misidentified as dead uh, that there was absolutely no walking back this belief. It's kind of like that thing where once you believe it, even when credible evidence is presented, you just think it's a you conspiracy, down. right? You're yeah. like, no, it's real, and you're hiding it. You're working for Big Coffin. Um, so... <laughs> So there was no way that was going to get fixed. Um, But on the plus side, this book and its popularity and the public consciousness about the possibility of live burial did make physicians a lot more careful about declaring their patients dead.
2: This is like the opposite of Virginia Apgar needing to look at the babies. Um, So the case of Hannah Beswick is this clear indicator of how deeply people were starting to fear being buried alive in the second half of the 18th century. Hannah was a wealthy woman, she was unmarried, and because her brother had allegedly been almost buried alive, she was really, really completely terrified of premature burial. So much so that she made a deal with her Manchester doctor, Charles White, to keep her body from burial indefinitely. (laughs) An even bigger abundance of caution. (laughs) For the sum of 20,000 guineas. So some retellings say that he inherited the entirety of her fortune. Others say that he merely had this one lump sum payout. But the important thing is that he really did keep her from being buried for a very long time. So after
1: Ms. Beswick died in 1758, Dr. White embalmed her. Uh, he kept her in his home for years and years and years. He would check on her annually uh, with a witness standing by to make sure everything was cool and that she was, in fact, well-preserved. I read one thing that said that he eventually moved her from, like, kind of an out-in-the-open thing to, like, putting her in a clock, but I'm not sure if that's true. (laughs) What? Is that not where you keep your bodies? I don't... I got a house full of grandfather (laughs) clocks I got to open once a year. Um... I don't really. Don't anybody come for me. I so expect police at my hotel later. Um, so he totally kept his promise and and went through with what this deal had entailed. But then, when Doctor White died in 1813, the executive, the executors of her of his estate, were like, I don't know what do we want to do with this dead body. Uh, so they gave it to the Museum of the Manchester Society of Natural History, and she went on display there. <laughs> um, Just probably not what she had in mind. Um, She was finally buried in 1868, and that was 100 years after she died. So this led to rumors that that had been the timeline that was specified with her doctor, but I don't think that's actually the case. Uh, And while she was on display at the museum, she took on the nickname the Manchester Mummy.
2: If I had a time machine in our series of ridiculous things we would do with time machines, I would... (laughs) I would go back in time and reassure her, Honey, once, once they embalm you, if you weren't dead before, you are super
1: dead. Definitely are now. <laughs> in
2: 1817, a man named John Snart, <laughs> this is going to get better, published a book called Thesaurus of Horror. Yeah, in which he recounted a number of incidents of alleged live burials, and one such story reads, quote, About 40 years ago, a man well-known about the streets of London and its environs as an itinerant vendor of handkerchiefs, etc., was not only supposed dead, but partly buried alive. However, he was happily rescued from the above horrible fate by some providential accident of delay in totally filling up the grave. And before the gravediggers had left the spot, he was heard to groan and was instantaneously relieved from his perilous situation. The particulars of where it happened have escaped the author's recollection. (laughs) But the awful substance is not obliterated in the least.
1: So Snart described this man, I know that name, dude, change it up, um, (laughs) described this man as, quote, a living witness of the horrible temerity of premature interment, and he wrote that while this nameless handkerchief vendor went on to live a really long life, uh, it wasn't a great life, because he was taunted and made fun of for being the dude that got buried alive, um... And this whole tale, though, I mean, you guys are smart. You heard it. It has all of the trademarks of a tall tale that is told to stir up fear and probably sell books in the process. Um, so it's very convenient that the man in question, who has no name, also has no ties to anyone else on any sort of records. He's just an itinerant salesman, y'all. We don't know. Um, But he lived through this horrible near burial and then suffered the jokes of insensitive jerks for the rest of his life. So it's kind of this double whammy of sad stories. And we all love those, so
2: that's why it sold a lot of books. Yeah, so Snart went on to suggest that for every near miss like that, a thousand other people were buried before their time. He was not alone in this totally made up statistic. Numerous writers were publishing their opinions and their warnings on the matter of being buried alive with a whole array of unsubstantiated and very scary statistics. Everything from one false burial a week to two out of every 100 burials being premature were reported.
1: Yeah, and that was completely made up. There was like, some of these uh, would describe like how they came to those figures, but it was always based on like weird supposition and not... Not really anything scientifically sound. And that topic of this potential to be buried alive remained really popular uh, with readers throughout the 1800s. As we said, it sold a lot of books. In 1890, more than 70 years after Snart's publication, Dr. Moore Russell Fletcher wrote a book titled, Our Home Doctor, Domestic and Botanical Remedies Simplified and Explained for Family Treatment with a treatise upon suspended animation, The Danger of Burying Alive, and Directions for Restoration. Um, Which I kind of love. I mean, you want the antidote, right? Uh, And it ran with a secondary title of 1,000 Persons Buried Alive by Their Best Friends. (laughs) So text your best friend after the show and be like, check on me, make sure it doesn't happen.
2: As the 1800s went on, a number of other influences raised more cultural anxiety about premature burial, and one of those was the fiction of the time. In July of 1844, Edgar Allan Poe's The Premature Burial was published in Dollar Newspaper. And this story, in case you haven't read it, features a narrator who has catalepsy, and that is a medical condition in which the person falls into a death-like state of unconsciousness I think we talked about it in that episode we did on narcolepsy. Mm -hmm. Um, And because of it, the narrator of the story is afraid for his whole life of being buried alive.
1: Uh, and we won't give the whole plot away in case you haven't read it. It's a really lovely discovery because that Pope kind of knew what he was doing. Uh, but the narrator cites examples in the book of premature burials to give his concerns credence. And he describes all of the many, many ways in which he has carefully prepared his own tomb to escape from in case he suffers the, quote, true wretchedness of being buried alive. And this story was, of course, sensational, and it preyed on this idea and fear that was already really taking hold in the culture at the time.
2: He'd also already touched on premature burial in his short story, Berenice, which was published in the Southern Literary Messenger in 1835. And Poe's story, Cask of Amontillado, also played on the fear of live burial in a revenge plot. I remember that one from school. A premature... I lost my place on my paper. I think it's because
1: I left a word out of this paragraph because that's what I like to do. To Berry. Tracy. Just to
2: Jack with her a little bit. You yeah, know, keep her on her toes. It's fine. Premature burial figured into the 1939 Burton's Gentleman's Magazine debut of "The Fall of the House of Usher." Another thing we read in school. We read a lot of Poe. Because Poe's really good. Um, So Poe was certainly fascinated with this idea of being buried alive, which is probably not a surprise to anybody, and also recognized the potentially lucrative nature of these tales that preyed on the reader's fears. I feel like I should have an aside and go, I know we
1: talked about Poe a lot, but I am a woman with a framed portrait of Edgar Allan Poe in her dining room, so clearly... (laughs) I have a little bit of a focus situation. There Um, used to
2: apparently be a lot more Poe in this outline, and then it it was was, pulled back. (laughs) There was a whole lot more Poe, because I
1: just want to talk about his work all the time, because I love it. Uh, And all of these stories, though, about premature burial that he wrote came before his really rapid rise to fame in 1845 with the publication of The Raven. But once he became popular and The Raven became popular... His other stories were reprinted to capitalize on that fame. And so his work continued to gain new readers and become more famous and build on the already common fear of awakening in a tomb or grave that had just been, you know,
2: already kind of bubbling up in the U.S. and Europe. So keep in mind that while embalming had been practiced all the way back to ancient Egypt, it really wasn't all that common in the United States or Europe at this point. Embalming isn't necessary a lot of cultures and religions look on it as a defacement of the body, and it really became more popular during the United States Civil War when Dr. Thomas Holmes started embodying, embalming bodies so that there would be some time to ship the bodies of soldiers who had been killed in the battle home to their families. Holmes had been experimenting with embalming practices before that. He claimed to have embalmed more than 4,000 bodies during the war, making himself a whole lot of money in that process. And then after that, embalming became a business that was offered to the general population, and it gave funeral professionals a way to give grieving families more time to make their their funeral arrangements rather than needing to bury the body pretty much immediately.
1: Yeah, that 4,000 bodies number gets really big when you consider that at the time he was apparently charging $100 per body. So during the Civil War, that was a
2: load of cash. That seems like a huge amount of money.
1: Uh, And as the 20th century approached, discussion of premature burial became even more common in public discourse. And we're going to get into that a little bit, but right now we're going to pause.
2: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. When you think about the future, what
1: kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. So in 1896, a British businessman and activist named William Tebb formed the London Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial. <laughs> he wanted to ensure, I mean, they had a mission. He wanted uh-huh. to make sure that steps were taken to minimize the likelihood of anyone suffering this fate. And he worked with doctors and survivals of near burial to develop the ideas that the, the group formed together.
2: So in 1905, Teb, Teb published a book. It was titled Premature Burial and How It May Prevented with special reference to catalepsy and other forms of suspended animation. And this book had a bunch of different methods building on the work of the writers that came before that the medical community would uh, be able to be very, very certain that a person was really dead before declaring them to be dead. These are not pleasant methods. No, just so, to warn you.
1: Brace if you're squeamish. Um, these included holding fire to their hands um, and applying hot irons to the body and injecting them with various substances, some of which would have killed them. Um, <laughs> But the idea here was that people in trance-like states that were causing these false death declarations could perhaps be jolted to consciousness by some form of shock to the body. Um, Like, I guess slapping was too nice. I don't know what that's about. Why they're like, let's burn them. Um, (laughs) But this book also offered up some really pretty cool new ideas for the time. So uh, it mentioned attempts at resuscitation through electric shock or artificial respiration. And this is a very new idea. Uh, Chest compression was super new at this point. It had been discussed and practiced in some form or another, although not commonly, for about 10 years. And mouth-to-mouth resuscitation was still 50 years off. So in that regard, it was really ahead of its time.
2: So you may have noticed that trance states have come up a lot, and you might wonder why were there so many people in comas and trances during this time? That seems odd Uh, There were a couple of things going on, and one big problem was cholera, and in the 19th century, cholera pandemics were pretty common, and global trade was helping to carry contaminated food and water basically everywhere. Uh,
1: But one of the advanced states of the illness uh, was a coma that presented very much like death, and there were cases where a person was determined to be deceased when they were, in fact, not. Additionally, uh, just knowing that it was possible to get so sick that you looked dead even to a physician really helped spread a public sense of fear that that might happen.
2: Another problem was what came to be called lucid hysterical lethargy, or more casually, death trance. I continue to be really curious about what was really going on here but there were numerous cases in the 19th century of people who confronted with certain topics or situ- situations would experience this highly elevated heart rate followed by a drop into a death, a death trance and it was actually uh, Dr. George Guy de Tourette de Tourette I'm going to say that really not the way anyone should say this word. How does this go Holly? Uh, Dr. Georges Gilles de la Tourette, that guy for whom Tourette's Syndrome is named, uh, who came to this conclusion that it was a mental disorder and not a contagion or a medical issue. Yeah, that's one of those things that um,
1: it sometimes gets written off under the category of hysterical women. Um, But there were actually instances where they were recording this. Like, they were taking these people's pulses and they were rising rapidly and then dropping to almost nothing. So if that was a case of someone kind of working themselves into it, like, their body was definitely responding to their mental state.
2: Yeah, I'm just like, what was it, though?
1: (laughs) It was fashionable? Yeah, Um, maybe. But here's the thing that kept all of this panic and hysteria going. There absolutely have been people who were buried prematurely, um, which stinks. But there were a lot more that were mistakenly identified as having buried... Uh, having been buried prematurely. And because of the improved communications that were happening in the late 19th century, industry was causing great communication advances, these horror stories would get picked up and spread like wildfire. And they were largely the result of people not understanding science
2: and how the human body decomposed. For example, a lot of these stories hinged on this evidence, in air quotes, that the person was heard to cry out after having been buried. But this is actually a phenomenon that's known as Totenlaut, which is German for dead loud. And it refers to the way that the gases build up in the body during decomposition and they eventually cause the throat to open and the air rushes like it would if you were speaking. It causes some kind of cry for help. It's not a cry for help, it's a cry made by gas, in your decomposing body. You just have gas. Um, yeah, there's a lot of... It's just gas. It's
1: just gas, though. <laughs> Ever since I was doing this research and I told it to my husband, every time we belch in the house, we go, totin' loud. <laughs> <and> then, <laughs> We think we're hilarious. That is the best um, new euphemism. <laughs> oh, my totem louds acting up. Uh, so similarly, some of the most shocking, and brace, because it's kind of gross, uh, upsetting stories of premature burial are attributed to women who died while pregnant and then for some reason or another were later exhumed to discover what appeared to have been an in-coffin delivery. Um, it's super gross, I know, it's y'all. It's very sad. But it's not quite the the uh, people, That's not would, what was happening. people would presume that, oh my gosh, she woke up and gave birth to her baby in a coffin. That's not what happened at all. Uh, there is always a German word for everything. Uh, and this phenomenon is called Sagerbert, which simply means coffin birth.
2: So discoveries of coffin births in histories, which like they continue to happen when we're doing our unearthed episodes at the end of the year. Sometimes there are, you know, somebody that did an archaeological dig. And here is another one right there. But uh, it could lead to really steep penalties and punishments for the doctors who were involved when it's something that was discovered pretty quickly. The doctors would be accused of neglect. But once again, the real culprit here is just decomposition and gas. Like gas filling the abdominal cavity, creating pressure. Like it's, it's, not, it's not at all that the person was still living in some way. Um, a thing that... that <laughs> is not uh is not noted here but that like i heard about in this in my teen tween fascination with death years Mm -hmm. um was people thinking that people's hair and nails were continuing to grow yeah and um like some of it was people thought that people's hair and nails continued to grow after they died which they don't or they were like oh they must have been buried alive because their hair is so much longer no it's just that like your skin recedes i'm gonna tell you something scary Uh (laughs) uh-oh
1: um there was one thing that came up in some of the research i was doing that no one's been able to explain which is that uh in cases where bodies have been exhumed there have been times where they have found clutches of hair in clenched hands Ah. and they can't explain that Ah. uh we don't know if like as part of decomposition you try to comb your hair so you look pretty i don't i don't know what happens but that's a scary thing that came up. And because there's no explanation, I was like, Meh, this one's running long. Well, and uh, it also
2: that doesn't seem like a, something that a, a person might do if they really did regain consciousness in the coffin. Oh,
1: the first thing I would do is zhuzh.
2: Okay. That's the first
1: thing I would do. I'd okay. be like,
2: oh, where's my lipstick? <laughs> I, <know. laughs> uh, I would turn into Beatrix Kiddo and start punching the thing in front of me. <laughs>
3: Uh, okay, so all of we this talk concern, about this again.
1: yeah, uh, all of this concern about being trapped in an early grave naturally sparked human innovation, uh, and starting in the late 18th century, people started coming up with some pretty fantastic coffins that would help ease their fears of waking up six feet under with no means of escape.
2: Thus, the so-called safety coffin was born. So, Duke Ferdinand of Brunswick is usually cited as the first person to commission a safety coffin. And that was a project he initiated in the early 1790s. So in the early years of all of this happening, this was a custom built coffin, and he had a window installed. There was a tube so that if he w- if he awoke in, if he awoke entombed, he could still breathe. And then importantly, the coffin had a locking lid, and it wasn't supposed to be nailed in place. The lock could be opened from inside. So he also had a special set of keys made. This just gets more complicated. He had these keys that were tucked into a pocket in his death shroud. So if by some misfortune he had been buried alive, when he woke up, he could use those keys to open up his coffin and then open the family tomb from inside. <laughs> if I woke
1: up in a coffin, I would not have my wits about me. I would not, other than the lipstick, which I would totally do. Um but then I'd be like, I don't, oh, I would do the Beatrix kiddo thing like, and really hurt myself before I was like, hey, I had some keys made. I forgot about those keys. But here's the thing, right? Not everybody had a family tomb, so you couldn't just give yourself a set of keys. Most folks were buried in the ground with no way to see themselves out. Uh, so a few years after Duke Ferdinand's idea... A German priest named P.J. Pessler came up with an idea that every coffin should have a cord installed that could be pulled from the inside, and should the person wake up inside and pull said cord, the local church bells would ring so that everyone would know that the recently buried person was in fact alive.
2: <laughs> Gotta come dig them up. In the 1820s, inventor and showman Adolf Gutsmith, put his own spin onto this whole idea of a safety coffin. His coffin features included the ones in the other models at the time, so there was an air tube and an alarm, but the tube on his design was big enough that if the person inside woke up, food could be sent down to give them enough sustenance uh, while the whole digging up process happened. So Gutsmith himself tested his, inve- his inventions a lot of times and on one occasion, he ate a full meal of sausages and soup and washed it all down with beer, all while buried one in, inside one of his coffins. That, I'm just, I'm sorry, this seems like a very gassy plan for your test. It also seems like a restaurant
1: concept that is going to take off. <laughs> like, you know someone's going to hear this and be like, I'm going to call investors and I'm in a minute I need 22 coffins um, and tubes full of sausage. Um, I just have to say I got to admire eating a sausage in a tube. Uh, and I wonder if the tube got greasy on the way. I have many questions. Well, I have questions. Like,
2: you don't really have a lot of room to sit up in a closed coffin. So I'm like, are you, how are you drinking your... Is it? I would die now?
1: because I would open my mouth to be ready and the food would go in and I would choke. Okay. That's how that would play out. And they'd be like, "Ah, eh, leave her there." Um, so <laughs> I'm trying to think how you have the second funeral at that point. Um, a really complex and fairly thorough approach was devised in 1829 by Dr. Johann Gottfried Taberger. and this German inventor designed, again, a system of strings to attach to the probably deceased's limbs, uh, which ran to an above-ground bell. And to avoid any false alarms, the bell had its own little housing uh, to prevent it from being triggered by the elements. So if it got rained on or if wind came, it wouldn't go off. And should the bell ring, a watchman was trained to spring into action and insert a tube into a specific slot so that breathable air could be pumped down to the undeceased
2: uh in eighteen sixty eight Franz Vester of Newark, New Jersey filed a patent for an improved burial case. I had a book with this exact patent drawing when I was a teen, and this i don't i it wasn't even like I was particularly gothy or anything. I was just like really fascinated by it I could see
1: you being super into it from the scientific angle, yeah, whereas I was like, oh, yeah. Gothy, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what kind of lining is in that coffin? Yeah, that's where I was at. Can it, can it receive sausages? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: so, the patent application described how this would all work. Quote, the supposed corpse being laid in the body, A, of the coffin, and the cord, K, placed in the hand of the corpse. The cord is next drawn through the tube, C and attached to the bell, I, and the tube C is placed in the base D on the lid of the coffin. The coffin is now lowered into the grave, and the grave filled up to the air inlets, F. Now, should the person laid in the coffin on returning to life desire to ascend from the coffin and the grave to the surface, he can do so by means of the ladder, H, But if too weak to ascend by the ladder, he can pull the cord in his hand and ring the bell, I giving the desired alarm for help. I like that he's like, if
1: you want to get out.
2: If you just want to lay there, Maybe it's you're fine. cozy.
1: Maybe it had a good lining. Um, so Franz's coffin design would be buried only up to a certain point, as Tracy said, so the air inlets would still let air come in uh, and oxygen to the maybe deceased. And then, after a certain period of time had passed, without the coffin's passenger, which was the only word I could come up with there, um, making any moves to leave, then the burial could be completed. This, I imagine... Um, uh, Gravediggers and the like found this very irritating
2: as a concept. Yeah. Like, thanks for doubling my workload, You're jerk. really making the job of an already very labor-intensive job harder. Yes. So then in 1885, inventors Charles Sieber and Frederick H. Borntrager of Waterloo, Illinois, came up with a casket that offered, quote, certain new and useful improvement in lifeguard signals for people buried in a trance. And this invention had an above-ground bell that could be rung from the person buried in the coffin, as others before it had, but it also had a mechanism that could activate a blast of air into the coffin, uh, once again, from above ground to avoid suffocation. It was fancy. Yeah.
1: Uh, In 1893, when Vermont doctor Timothy Clark Smith died, he was not... Or he was, rather, interred in a grave that he had designed specifically for himself to stave off the likelihood of accidentally dying underground. So, he first arranged for the space next to his plot to also be his, and he had a set of stairs built into it. Um, and he rigged his own breathing tube and bell system to alert anyone in case he awoke entombed, but he also added another touch, and this is a window above ground that sees down. Today, You can still see the window over his face in Evergreen Cemetery uh, in New Haven, Vermont. But the glass, which was intended to give passersby or uh, someone who was maybe concerned a chance to just check in on him and see like, hey, are you actually deceased or are you um, maybe waking up? Um, That has unfortunately become clouded. So if you are feeling a little bit morbid and you want to go look, you won't see anything gross. But you can say that you went and looked at a corpse through a window.
2: Yeah, I don't know if that's unfortunate. (laughs) I think that might be a blessing. Uh, Count Michel de Carnice Carnicky came up with his own solution to this whole premature burial problem in 1897. He was a chamberlain to Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, and he presented this idea at a conference organized by the French Society of Hygiene at the Sorbonne. There were doctors and diplomats and the press the czar had given him the leeway in his duties to focus exclusively on developing the idea for this coffin, and he had put all the bells and whistles into it. So he called
1: his device La nice after himself, like you would, uh, and like similar inventions, it was intended to alert someone if the person in the coffin was alive. This version was also intended to give even an unconscious but alive person a shot at being rescued. So you'll notice some of those others involved, like you gotta wake up and pull a string and do a thing, but this uh, had a glass ball that hung over the chest of the probably dead person, and if the ball was in any way disturbed, it would trigger this spring-loaded mechanism that opened a container that sat above the grave. And when the container opened, Air would rush into the coffin via a tube. These people love their tubes. Um, A chime would sound, and a flag would deploy. So it was like, woo, I'm alive! Um, I feel like if this were a real functioning type thing, little Richard had this. And this air tube also allowed light into the coffin because he thought, like, if you had been buried and you woke up, you might want to actually have some daylight. And it also had a tiny electric light inside the coffin as a backup solution in case you woke up
2: on an overcast day or at night. (laughs) So this was incredibly well-received. Somehow it was affordable. Uh, It had been developed over the years of research, and it probably helped that it had the Russian czar behind it. That was a lot of clout. The press raved that it had solved the problem of premature burial. The London Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial endorsed it. And soon he took this thing on tour to promote it. Uh, it didn't, didn't go well. It didn't go as bad as you're thinking, but there was a problem. So
1: on tour, the Count would stand there and extol the virtues of this invention, while an assistant who was buried in La Carnice, would provide a very real demonstration of just how well it worked. But on one of the stops on the tour, the bell failed to sound and the flag did not deploy, and time was going by, and the audience started getting progressively more concerned, uh, and so did Carnese Karnicky, And so the inventor then got several men and was kind of like, he called it, and uh, they all started digging very quickly, and they were very happy when the assistant turned out to be alive, he had triggered the device, and it worked enough to get air to him, but those alarm systems did not work. Um, and the press actually skewered La Carnice after this. It was a big public failure. It was super embarrassing. And even the favor that it had briefly enjoyed from the medical professionals and high-profile enthusiasts that had
2: initially embraced it quickly retracted. So Carnice Carnegie continued to market his device in an effort to try to regain the public's lost trust And a man named Farapo Lorenzo, who was 78, demonstrated the device for the Count in Turin, Italy. He was buried in it for nine days before being dug up again. He wrote, uh, Carnice Karnicki wrote in promotional material, hyping up how real the danger of premature burial was and trying to counteract all of his critics and he took his safety coffin to the United States where it was once again really well received, but not well enough that he ever managed to really sell many of them. Yeah,
1: allegedly it sat in like showrooms at funeral homes and it was like, you could have this and people would be like, that's okay. I don't think so. I'm not Little Richard. Um, there were at least two designs for safety coffins that I really like. They really simplified this whole concept of alerting people that you might need out um, Hubert Devoe of New York came up with his version in 1894, and then Marie Constant Hippolyte Nicole of France came up with hers in 1899, and both of these made use of natural movement to set the cycle in motion to alert someone above ground and get air pumped into the coffin.
2: Both of them realized that rather than having a cord that somebody had to remember to pull upon waking... It would uh, be a lot more elegant to just have a lever above the head of the body. So the first thing a person would do upon waking up in a coffin would probably be to raise their head. So both of these designs were triggered by that motion of sitting up in the coffin, But what happened after the trigger was a little different. So in DeVoe's design, the raising of
1: the head would raise and open a valve above ground that would admit air into the coffin. And that valve, as per DeVoe's patent write-up, quote, should be made of some bright color so that it could be readily seen. And so it would alert grave watchers that
2: movement was underway in the coffin that was buried below. Nicole's design featured an elaborate hook and counterweight apparatus that broke a glass when the person lifted their head, which let air come in. And then the noise of the glass breaking was supposed to provide the alert to the outside world that something was amiss. Uh, but as the inventor wrote, quote, I can also by the breaking of the glass set in motion any convenient apparatus for sounding an alarm, So this particular design was intended for coffins that would be kept above ground until the living were completely certain that the person in it was dead, and then the window area would be sealed up with some kind of plate, and then the coffin would be buried.
1: Yeah, I have to wonder, these designs that feature buy-in from other people, like, you can buy the coffin, but you also got to find someone willing to either only bury you partway or hang out and wait till they're sure you're dead and seal this thing up before it goes in. Like, I mean, how do you approach a friend with that? Um, Hi. I love you, and I need to talk about my final arrangements. Um, Eventually, electricity actually made its way into some of these safety coffin designs. In 1900, Walter J. McKnight of Buffalo, New York, filed a patent for an electric device for indicating the awakening of persons buried alive. And in McKnight's design, movement within the coffin would close a circuit. Like he had all these levers that were metal and they would close circuits if you moved, Uh, and it was attached to an electric signal above ground. And one section of his design even included an arm similar to that glass ball we talked about earlier that just sat above the chest of the person that was probably deceased so that even if they breathed and were not conscious, it would close that circuit and start the whole process.
2: So these are all novel and creative ideas. That does not, though, make them good. And we are going to discuss why that is in just a moment. But first... Uh, we will leave a place for an ad for listeners at home later on.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection
1: There is, of course, some pretty flawed logic in most of these safety coffin designs that we've been talking about. So as we mentioned in the first segment, uh, corpses twist and turn a lot in a lot of bizarre ways as they decompose. So almost all of these designs that featured some movement in the coffin setting them off were open to the possibility of false positive alarms being activated. The obvious solution, at least if you asked uh, Franz Vestor in 1868, was to include a viewing tube so that, again, it's a tube, so that other people could then just, like, peek in on the recently buried and see if they were trying to get help or if they were just decomposing and setting the alarm off.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, in addition to that, unless the provided air supply were being pumped in continually, the person inside would really still only be able to survive for a very brief amount of time, maybe even as little as an hour. So, the idea of waking up and then activating the air tube, so like that, this was just not really a workable solution. But even though uh, the fields of
1: medicine and preparation of the dead have both evolved, there is still an ongoing fear of uh, being buried alive that persists today. Uh, Because some religions, we mentioned this earlier, forego embalming or require that a body be put in the ground very quickly, there is still this possibility in the minds of some people that this could actually be a real concern. And so... um, as I was digging through the patent office listings of safety coffins, the most recent one that I found was actually designed in 2014. Um, and it is called a portable alarm system for coffins. And, um, And it was, uh, it featured, quote, a signal transmitting structure removably secured in the coffin or tomb. So if someone were to wake up inside this coffin, they could press a button, a visual signal above the ground would be triggered. And then the whole thing, here's the part that I really like, it's designed with conservation in mind. Because when it's determined that enough time has gone by that the person within is really and truly deceased, then this whole device can be removed and used again on another coffin. Which is kind of cool. It's
2: recycling. Yeah. <laughs> uh so even before safety coffins really became so popular another way to avoid premature burial had a brief heyday and that was the waiting mortuary. This was basically a place where bodies could be placed and observed for a period of time to make sure they were really definitely truly dead before being interred and decomposition was the only benchmark for determining that the death was real with any kind of confidence. So Bruyer, that fear-mongering
1: doctor who stirred up all this panic over waking up in a tomb or grave, had actually proposed this concept way back in the 1740s. But it didn't manage to gain traction initially. There were some um, heads of royal houses who were like, we should do that. And then the funding never happened. Um, because probably they realized... Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um But the idea came up again in the late 1780s because a number of other doctors at that point who had read Bruyer's work started reiterating it and rewriting their own ideas about this and saying that this is really something we should consider.
2: So obviously it would be optimal to keep somebody who appeared to be dead somewhere that if they did wake up they could just be seen to by a physician immediately and given whatever care they needed to continue to not be dead. But... It's hard to tell people to keep their deceased loved ones around their houses for prolonged periods just in case they happen to wake up.
1: Yeah, I know you're dealing with grieving and some other stuff, but could you just hang on to this for a few days? Uh, It's not cool. So Germany in particular picked up this idea that special facilities should be built to house the newly probably dead, uh, where they could be looked after and checked on in an environment that was specially prepared for any surprise awakenings. Uh, one of the proponents of this idea was a physician named Christoph Wilhelm Hufeland, who wrote very plainly about the corpse house that he was building in 1791. Hufeland did not embellish or tell frightening stories to support this writing. He wasn't, uh, you know, prone to try to, like, stir up fervor about it. He was really matter-of-fact, and he described all of these functions very simply and very clearly.
2: In Hufalan's Lichen House, which was named the Asylum for Doubtful Life. (laughs) Yeah, the names in this are so good. Uh, There were eight beds or stretchers for the corpses, and then an attendant kept an eye on all the charges. And this was at the time, normally a woman. But Hufeland thought that women were too flighty and stupid to do a really good job, so he thought that this should become a trained profession for young men. Thanks, dude. Uh, glad to have your confidence. There were also porters to keep the place running, basically like a home, keeping fires going and seeing to the general tidiness of the place, and a doctor was on call at all hours.
1: And Hufeland's waiting mortuary was built in Weimar, but before long, similar facilities had popped up in Berlin, Frankfurt, Augsburg, and a lot of other cities throughout Germany. It's sort of like the saying, nature finds a way. Uh, You could also say that free enterprise does as well, uh, because one house in Munich figured out a way to make extra cash, and that was that this establishment charged a visitor's fee that, once paid, entitled the guests to just explore the facility. They were welcome to see all of the beautiful lounges and waiting rooms, but they all just wanted to go walk in the corpse room. Um, and the Leichenhaus in Frankfurt also started taking visitors who wanted to indulge their macabre curiosity.
2: This is like a precursor to the Mütter Museum. Kind of. So that Munich facility had some other problems in terms of how it was run. The staff, as a matter of procedure, tied strings to the extremities of the patients, which if they moved would trigger a harmonium, which is a pump organ, and the harmonium was played once a day to make sure that it still worked. It was in good working order. But as we mentioned, in the case of the safety coffins, dead people move Uh, a lot. It's pretty common. And so this was basically just a constant false alarm situation I can't imagine being the person whose job it is to sit with the dead bodies to make sure they're really dead and they're constantly moving and making noise but it's a harmonium noise
1: that harmonium is poorly tuned don't don't be like me harmonium Uh, Waiting mortuaries persisted well into the 19th century. There were even a few in the 20th century uh, that had not yet shut down. And proprietors started to hope that they could mold this into a luxury industry by building progressively more ornamental and fashionable homes for these businesses. They looked like beautiful houses. But they didn't last forever, um, because despite the fancier ones being built, people just started to think of them as really gross places. I mean, they kind of were. They just were like, ugh. And also, let's say my loved one wakes up. I don't want them to wake up in a room full of corpses. Uh, so, So they kind of started to fall out of favor.
2: People started to question what it would be like for somebody falsely assumed to be dead to wake up, wake up in a place like this, just surrounded by these decomposing bodies, and they just didn't want that. And then there was this very tricky fact. There's no record of anyone ever waking up in one. Uh, that cast doubt on the entire idea of premature burial as this you know, total scourge of living people. And then as people started to realize that it was really pretty unusual to be buried alive, it became apparent that there was not need for a service like this, and waiting mortuaries slowly died out. I'm so
1: sorry. I wrote that pun, and I don't even like puns. I promise I punched myself in the face. I'm
2: the person who named an episode of our show, A Brief History of Air Conditioning. No, wait, A Condensed History of Air Conditioning. And I don't like puns either but i was like yeah. i can't call it anything besides that yeah I, i'm not a fan of the puns i don't know why i can't um, say it wrong in front of a live audience it's okay so. it's okay everything's cool
1: uh if you have listened to our other live shows and as tracy mentioned earlier we uh have a no bummer policy for them and you might know that so uh we're talking about really morbid and sometimes gross things here so in the interest of ending in a bit of a happier place I had this goofy idea uh, that I would write a silly poem about the final wishes of famous historical people that were designed to make sure that they did not go to their graves before their
2: time. This is probably the best thing that has ever (laughs) happened on our show. (laughs) Don't
1: oversell it, because now I'm going to choke. So I called this How to Make Sure You Won't Be Buried Alive or Weird Advice from Famous People. Okay, there's a buy-in you have to do with me here. There is a moment where I'm going to say the word veins, and what I mean is the word arteries. But the word arteries takes up a lot of syllables and is hard to rhyme in a rhyming couplet. So um, <laughs> please
2: do not pedant this poem. So, I know it's
1: arteries, but here we go. George Washington asked to be held for three days before he was placed in his Mount Vernon grave, Alfred Nobel bade, please open my veins. Hans Christian Andersen wanted the same. Frederick Chopin wished his body cut open. Schopenhauer for putrefaction to set in. Auguste Renoir's dearest wish simply said, Whatever happens, my son, please just make sure I'm dead. And that is that. <laughs> We want to thank so many people for making our first tour a delight on both coasts, Uh, from all of the venue staff that took great care of us and made the shows happen, to all of the people that came out to see us. You were all amazing, and we are so, so grateful for your support and your warmth and for chatting with us and just making it a really delightful time.
2: And we hope everybody who celebrates Halloween has a wonderful and safe time. And I actually have a
1: little bit of listener mail, uh, which is related to one of our Halloween episodes. Uh, It's actually two pieces of mail because they are related. They are both about our Charles Adams episode. So the first one is um, from our listener Megan. I hope she's a Megan and not a Megan and that I'm not mispronouncing it, but either way, you know I meant well. Uh, she writes, Long time listener, first time writing in. Thank you both for your lovely and engaging podcast. I learned so much with each episode. I was even more delighted that a bit of the second part of the Charles Adams story grazed my life, if only by a minute fraction. I am a PSU alum and never knew my alma mater had such a piece of art. Uh, although to be fair, the library says, System for Penn State is huge. Uh, if you recall, in that episode, we mentioned a piece of art that the library had. There was a huge mural, 14 by 4 feet, that Charles Adams painted uh, originally for a seaside resort. And she goes on to say the. Patty and Paterno libraries, I hope I'm not mispronouncing that, are truly lovely buildings and worth touring if any other listener has the opportunity to visit State College uh, or, or University Park, the campus name. The library does allow the public in for viewing, and if you are a Pennsylvania resident, you may even get a library card for use in any library within the entire Penn State system across the state, uh, which is awesome to know. And then just in case you were wanted a little more backup and reassurance, we also got an email about the same thing from uh, our listener, Ruth who says, I'm a regular listener who also happens to work in Paterno Library. First of all, thanks for not repeating the narrative of someone discovered it in our library about that piece of art, uh, since it had been hanging just outside our news library for more than a decade. Although people had gotten kind of used to seeing it, she wrote, second, as we serve the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, our library is open to the public, and folks are welcome to come in and look at all of our art, the architecture of our buildings, and use our materials anytime we're open. If you come in the entrance on Curtain Road and turn left at the welcome desk, you will see a sign for Starbucks go through that to the lounge, and the picture is up on the far side. Uh, so now you have reassurance also from a library employee that it is perfectly okay to go check out that Charles Adams painting if you wish, as well as handy directions. Thank you, Ruth. That was great. Uh, thank you, Megan, for writing and telling us uh, about it as well. I hope many people go check it out because it's really incredibly uh, lovely, and like I said, it's it's that ghoulish charm that I love Charles Adams for. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Mist in History. You can find us at mistinhistory.com on uh, our website, where we have every episode that has ever existed of the show, as well as show notes for the ones that Tracy and I have worked on, and occasional other goodies and odds and ends. Uh, if you would like to subscribe, you could do so at Apple Podcasts or on the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com.
3: Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on a Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
2: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz,